and welcome. My name is Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers who shared love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. On today's episode, in honor of Earth Day, we'll be analyzing the killer pants on everyone's minds, Elsa Kephart's slacks. Additionally, we'll be chatting about fast fashion, consumerism, and its effect on film in front of and behind the scenes. Jolene and I will chat about our experience in the wardrobe department when it comes to costuming ethically under a tight budget and pose the question, how can the film industry become more sustainable? But before I reveal our cards too much, let's jump right into the fast fashion slasher of your fever dreams, Slacks. For anyone who's not familiar, Slacks is a 2020 comedy horror currently streaming on Shudder, written and directed by Elsa Kephart. The film follows a possessed pair of jeans who begins to kill the staff of a deceptively ethical clothing store. It is up to Libby, an idealistic young sales clerk, to stop its bloody rampage. Jolene, I have to ask, what were your <laughs> thoughts on Slacks? So I really enjoyed this film. Um, it is campy. It's a little out there as a concept. I mean, it is a pair of jeans that are <laughs> strangling and killing people. Right. But the message behind the film that is is um, kind of under the surface, the whole first act, and then when you really get into it, you're like, oh, this is what this film is about. I thought it had a great message. And I mean, as a costume designer, how do you not love a movie that's all about a killer pair of clothing? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like we're predispositioned to enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I I completely agree. At first, I was kind of like, oh, this is just kind of like a fun B movie. But I think that the messaging behind it is something that I'm personally really passionate about. And I know you are too. And yes. I think that's why I continue to think about Slacks after I watched it. Because I really haven't seen a film delve into this topic like this. Um, I think it's such a unique concept. And yeah. for that, I absolutely have to give credit where credit's due. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. And and the fact that, like, the way it was costume designed, too, and how it really brought into things that we are all very um, – that are very recognizable in Western consumer culture of – you know, these brands who might not be so transparent or or they're telling us that they're being ethically sound um, when in, essentially what they're doing is greenwashing us into believing that they are this brand. And then behind the surface, they're not actually doing the work and they're not holding up to the namesake. And that's super important message to to get across because so many people and we'll get into this a little bit later when we're done talking about the film, like there are many tiers of exploitation that is involved with making clothing that is being mm -hmm. sold in the wear market. And um, yeah, a lot of it isn't being, or it is being addressed, but it's kind of now uh, people are, are kind of getting tired of hearing it. I feel like where it's like, Oh, okay. It's, I'm being beat over the head with this concept again, but it's a really important concept that I think needs to be driven home a lot of the times. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned greenwashing, which I think is one of the strongest themes within this film. There's lots that I think it does delve into. Um, but tell me a little bit more about greenwashing, because I know that that is something that we've talked a little bit about around this film, because that is what essentially this company's doing. They are showcasing their company to be kind of the friendly face 
of all the corporations. Like, no, we're the good one. Yeah. We're the good corporation. <laughs> so greenwashing is this disinformation disseminated by an organization so as to present an environmentally responsible public image. So it's the idea that um, a lot of now the new trend is that people are seeking organic, free from, fair trade, all of these um, ethically sourced not just clothing, but beauty products, cleaning products, all of these things. And greenwashing is when the company isn't practicing what they're preaching and they're just slapping a little leaf on the label or they're telling you that it's organic, non-GMO mm-hmm. or, and it's really dangerous because like I had this occurrence for myself this week where uh, there is a deodorant brand. I'm not going to say their name because I, I don't want them to get the credit, but they for a little bit were cruelty free which is something mm-hmm. that's really important to me when I buy my products because I don't think that a life should be harmed in any way to better us as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I come to find out that they weren't cruelty-free. <laughs> and mm-hmm. But the cruelty-free label was still on the back of the deodorant. And I was like, you, you can't do that because if somebody's not going to do the work, they're going to think that this product is safe and okay. And yeah, it's, it's really shady. <laughs> it's extremely shady. And- yeah. Especially when it comes to clothing brands because, you know, unlike, you know, beauty products where it's like, oh, well, the ingredients are uh, not sourced from animals. We didn't test on animals. Um, Clothing brands are a little bit trickier because when you think about cruelty-free, a lot of people immediately think about um, the animals impacted in the process and not the humans impacted in the process. And so – Greenwashing when it comes to a clothing company um, is probably even more effective because you aren't or, you know, maybe the general consumer um, and not of the consumer's fault. It is because of the marketing involved. um, They aren't thinking about the fact that there's child labor involved or um, extremely underpaid workers and sweatshops involved in the production of these of these of the clothing in these companies. Yeah. And that's what we find out in this movie slacks, which I mean, it's got those silly moments where you have a pair of pants that is dancing to Bollywood music, but through the Bollywood music. And I thought this was a brilliant device in the film. Um, we find out that this young girl, Karat has been exploited for her label. So first of all, she's working and she's, I think assumed 11 or 12 and she's out in these cotton fields, which if the, if it's not an organic cotton field, it is being polluted with tons of chemicals that should not be exposed to any sort of person, especially a young child. Um, And then we find out that she gets caught in the cotton gin when she's pouring her basket of cotton in. And that's what is, and and so we see this, like it, it's ha- it, it goes about it in a very horror movie trope kind of way where there's blood spurting about, but it's a real thing that does happen. And they're not making fun of the death of these workers in this way, but um, they're kind of flipping the script and saying, well, okay, if this happened, she would want to seek revenge on its wearers be- or, or let the wearers know that this is happening. And mm-hmm. that's how the pants become possessed. And I think that that's a brilliant tool that Elsa is using. Mm -hmm. I think that this film does something that, you know, 
it's extremely consistent in its themes and the themes of social responsibility. Um, you know, when it comes to irresponsible corporations and a world where fast fashion, which we'll get into a little bit more later, is constantly evolving and becoming more and more popular. And that, you know, there are well-known global issues that large corporations do not manage properly because they don't manage their supply chain. Right. Um, and I think what draws me to Slacks is the fact that, you know, an effective horror film generally is playing off of the current fears that people have, um, whether they mean to or not. And this is a very current fear that I think is gaining a little bit more traction um, in the media more than ever. And I think that the more the merrier when it comes to discussing this topic, because, you know, we can have a really fun horror slasher that's like in some ways absolutely bonkers but in other ways it's balanced with this very real fear that a lot of people have because you know what we're seeing is in slacks is a representation of things that really happen and you know in some ways obviously exaggerated but it's it's representing a very real irreversible pain that we sacrifice as consumers or that the corporations sacrifice on our behalf for the sake of Western pleasure and money. Yeah. And we have a manager in the store, Craig, who is fully aware of what's happening and is choosing to turn a blind eye because he's just so driven on, you know, becoming the general manager, becoming something. And then you have this, you know, um, the CEO of the company who is kind of a uh, you know, one of these like new older millennial type moguls of, you know, I'm I'm an activist and I'm a business person and I'm all of these things and look at how great I am. But he, he's not, you know, there's this evil side to the to what he's doing as well. And so many people are being exploited in this process. But what mm-hmm. we're seeing on this Western plane is just the quote unquote good that this company is bringing forth, which is not always yeah. accurate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'll say, I think Craig, the store manager, um, played by Brett Donahue, is I think one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Um, not because I like the guy, but because it's he's very effectively quite unsettling. Yes. Um, he stresses me out. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what this film does, and particularly with his character, is that all of the characters – They're very much involved within their own tropes, but also very clearly represent parts of this cyclical problem that we're seeing um, with consumerism. And he's, you know, basically representing, you know, the desperate guy. I mean, he is the desperate guy wanting to become a regional manager, but also that his self-worth is based upon his role in you know, the corporation and consumerism and it's, that's pretty much his entire identity and he would die for it. Um, But, you know, in general, he represents sort of toxic corporate hierarchy, um, which does sell to people in the workforce just trying to make a living that, you know, just like kind of like MLMs, it's kind of just the same thing. Uh, It's selling you an idea of um, reward and money on what, and, 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 you would have to sacrifice a lot of your morals perhaps, or maybe, maybe he didn't have morals to begin with, but in general, it's, it's, you know, morals yeah. aside, you'll find purpose 
in this, you know, in the pitfalls of, of corporate hierarchy. Yeah, I, one of the um, the image that really sticks with me with with Craig in particular and Libby is um, when our first character is killed, um, and because she is the one who steals the jeans, and they're not supposed to go out on the floor until midnight and till their their Monday madness sale that's happening the next day. So this is an overnight shift of they're on lockdown, they're revamping the store, and um, he just kind of. He, Libby discovers her under the sink in the bathroom and then he just kind of picks this girl up and puts her in one of those big laundry bins and discards her down the hallway like the mannequins. Like we see him putting Mm -hmm. her next to the bin of all of the store mannequins and her arm and leg are like flapping out of the the basket like a mannequin. Like, God, that was it was a really powerful image to be like, oh, I guess we're just all disposable if we don't subscribe to this. Mm-hmm. I, you know, like this corporate ladder. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, the theme of just throwaway culture in general, I think, yeah. is not only, you know, just prevails in this film, but is a massive part of consumerism and the rise of fast fashion, which I think we also kind of see represented in the character of Peyton Jewels, who is like yes. this YouTube <laughs> influencer um, <laughs> who, you know, I think with her, it kind of goes to show that the rise in, you know, influencer culture and social media, coupled with like the fast pace at which clothes are now manufactured and discarded and worn um, just in the fast fashion business model as we know it today, has given birth to this throwaway culture where clothing has become disposable because trends are moving so fast and so rapidly and we're also being sold this idea that it's important to submit to these trends and to these things. And they are now, they circulate your self-worth. Yeah. I have a, um, so I have an interest. I, I, the word influencer is very um, interesting because, right. So it's attached to this idea of this shallow, usually a woman who is doing these sort of like YouTube videos or is like these Instagram models. But then on the flip side, the the feminist in me is like, well, they have every right to make a living doing something like that. Exactly. But I think a lot of what these influencers do is really harmful because it does it. It, it attaches this identity to things and stuff and – if you don't have this, then you are less than, which is super harmful, especially if you're not in an economic place to be making these purchases. And it is just also so very wasteful when you come home with bags and bags of clothing. I've never watched any of those haul videos or any of those unboxings because I personally just don't want to watch somebody go through a bag of clothing. I can do that I'm kind on of the my same own. way. I'm like, I could just <laughs> I could just clean out my closet and do this in my own house. But yeah, it's um yeah, it's a hard yeah, it's it's hard it, I, in this yeah. in this western world. <laughs> it it is and I I agree. It's kind of it reminds me of the same sort of thing that I wrestle with um when it comes to, you know, the argument of like, well, fast fashion is accessible. Um right. there's there's it's not entirely a black or white problem, but 
the answer to most of it is usually that the corporation's at fault. Where like yeah. influencers, you know, what they accidentally become is this maybe self-run corporation at like the top level. Um, and what's dangerous about influencers and influencer culture is that they weren't necessarily like trying to get there and there isn't any, you know, there's not really structure involved in self-regulating that kind of process. You right. a lot of times are just skyrocketed into a position of power. Um, and oftentimes like there is self-responsibility involved in what you present on a large platform. But when it comes to, you know, influencers, bloggers, YouTubers, um, it's not necessarily their fault. And it's not necessarily their fault um, when they see an opportunity right. to be self-run um, in a world that doesn't want to hire them in the roles that they are equipped for. Absolutely. And especially in today's age where, you know, we're sold that you need a certain number of degrees to get a job and understanding that college and that type of higher education isn't for everybody. You know, trade school is totally valuable to go to. People knock it all the time, but some people are just not cut out for a university college, you know, course regulated system. And trade school is a viable option. But then when you have these degrees and acquired this knowledge and you can't even find jobs mm -hmm. and the job markets are so barren, it's like, well, how do you make money? So I feel like our generation has decided to like, okay, well, we're going to figure out how to take this thing that can be used against us and can be used in an evil way, meaning the internet and social media. And how do you flip it? And how do you monetize it and make it for your benefit? And yeah, but there is a self of, um, like you were saying, self censoring that also needs to be done. And if you're going to have that platform, any type of platform, what is the message that you want to be preaching right. on that and platform? I think that also social media and the internet and, you know, hence influencers are kind of in the wild west right now. There, yes. There are. I mean, this is such a new thing and it's growing rapidly. We've never seen it, which is only going to, you know, help the rise of consumerism and, you know, consumption within this capitalist Western world that we live in. Yeah. Uh, you know, the internet maybe it can help and hurt, but right now with the rise of influencer culture, it's maybe hurting in that way. Um, but another way to look at the character of Peyton and this influencer in this film is also just sort of the theme of blindly following someone, which is mm. in the case of maybe an influencer, the blind leading the blind, because this influencer was not, you know, properly briefed on what was actually going on behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people put their trust into um, these big influencers. And I mean, oftentimes not even big influencers. Yeah. People put their trust into them because one, the concept is super, super new. And when, you know, like YouTubers, for example, who this character Peyton is like a YouTuber. Right. Um, YouTubers came on the scene and got a lot of traction because it felt like the accessible answer um, to, you know, receiving information that was real and not tainted by yeah. corporate marketing. And even though we've seen 
unfortunately, a lot of these voices evolve into something that is just almost all sponsorships, which in most cases I'm like, yes, get your coin. It unfortunately is not good for the consumer still, even if it's like, yes, I support that person who's making a living off of being a YouTuber. Um, and And this isn't necessarily their responsibility to fix, but it can still be dangerous because, you know, within the last, you know, 10, 20 years, um, we still look to those voices, those large voices with large platforms on the internet as one of us. Those people are one of us and I can trust their opinion because it's not tainted by this kind of marketing, right. um, which becomes dangerous because, you know, once you reach 1 million subscribers or more or even less, you know, you kind of end up sacrificing potentially some of your own morals um, because this is now your job and people you can't control, um, you know, influencers can't control who's listening to them and how they're listening to them. Uh, And corporations don't necessarily care to fix that. No. And somebody like Peyton is under the assumption that through, so the, the brand in this movie is the Canadian cotton company and it's CCC is what you see everywhere that, um, the, CEO Harold Lansgrove, who's played by Stephen Balgert, is selling this idea that this company is okay. So she, as an influencer, is saying to herself, okay, well, this brand is okay and I want to promote them because these are all of the values. And look at all these signs. They're being transparent about these things. And it's a place where I can get clothing that is ethically sourced and fair trade and non-GMO cotton and all of these things. And it's not her fault that she is promoting this message because it's the company's responsibility to be transparent. And if they want to go behind the consumer's back in the way that this company does, I mean, there's no, I mean, ignorance is unfortunately bliss sometimes with these things because a lot Mm -hmm. of people just don't know what's happening under the covers of these companies. And Mm -hmm. that's the more dangerous and I think horrific part. (laughs) I think what it's, what it's coming to, especially with, technology evolving, which should be a good thing in many cases, is that corporations are generally one step ahead. And, you know, with with more of our information out there, there's more data to effectively market us things yeah. with. And, you know, it's just dangerous because a lot of these, you know, eco-conscious movements generally will gain kind of like a cult-like following, which is what you see in this. But you almost can't, you know, and while that's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, many ways you could say like, yeah, you can't blame them because you don't know who else to trust. Right. You know, yeah. and you can't trust, you know, massive corporations. So you think you go to an alternative Um, which is this eco-conscious corporation that's like, we hear you, we hear the problems you're having with these other big companies. Um, We're not like that. But you're like, okay, but you're a massive company. Right. And you don't want to support small businesses, you know, in, in the process. And it creates a lot of distrust and, you know, which is the same thing with like the influencers where it's like, oh, well, they're the answer. They're the influencers are the you know, the marketing equivalent of an eco-conscious movement because it's the alternative. It's like, that's who I can trust. And when you find out that you can't even, you can't trust 
the YouTuber telling you about this ego-conscious company because you can't even trust the ego-conscious company. Who's left to trust anymore? You oh, kind yeah. Of, I mean, no one. <laughs> it's so scary. <laughs> it really is because, yeah, you don't you don't know because you're you're saying to yourself like, okay, this company is different from the rest. They're coming out and they're speaking against this. So we as humans want to just kind of hope for the best in the other person and hope that they're following through on what they're saying. And yeah, I have these discussions a lot. I mean, Emma and I have talked about this, that, you know, we're both vegans. I have friends in the marine science community that I can talk to about a whole myriad of planetary issues of like commercialized fishing and exploitation of animals and all of this stuff. And it's when you get down to it, you're just like, at the end of the day, you're just like, God, people suck. It's really hard to try because every issue is interconnected and nothing is devoid from the other because where you think that these issues are separate, there there are so many overlaps and it's so hard. It's really difficult. Um, yeah. And, you know, just to harken back to the sort of another conundrum that you run into when it comes to uh, fast fashion is the fact that, you know, and I've argued or not argued. <laughs> I've wrestled with this argument in the past um, of just fast fashion being accessible to low income families. Right. Um, which is true. But what's difficult is that just that fact alone is something that um, is part of this sort of toxic cycle because, you know, I mean, and despite a rise in, in thrifting and secondhand sustainability, which I mean, in its own has gentrification problems of itself, um, you know, fashion houses and corporations want to sell their fantasy to consumers, making us feel like we need to dress a certain way. Um, which then leads to us feeling like we need to buy a certain product. And, you know, on top of that kind of marketing, we need to address the jobs and corporations that create poverty and low-income households in the first place instead of supporting the companies that perpetuate that cycle. And so it's not that there's – it's not like there's not other options to these fast fashion companies that are affordable um, because I think a lot of, you know, with that argument, it's kind of like, well, sure, I want to shop sustainably and I want to buy from all these companies that are, you know, small business, um, sweatshop free, uh, handmade, that kind of thing, which, you know, can often get get expensive brands like Reformation or something that people are like, well, that's yeah. a sustainable brand, but I can't afford that. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, I certainly can't afford that, you know, and yeah. it it doesn't mean that fast fashion is the answer. It's just sort of it's where we're led to believe and also what is marketed as the only other option. Like it's marketed as the affordable option. And, you know, we've been not at the fault of consumers, basically not given a lot of great options because they're like, oh yeah, well, if you want to be sustainable, then you have to spend more money, but you can't spend more money because of jobs like this that don't actually pay people enough and perpetuate the cycle of poverty. And so you have to still buy from us. Yeah. And even just perpetuating the cycle of poverty with just the way that th- that things are consumed. So like there's the story of like you could buy the pair of work boots for your job that are $50 or you can buy 
the $100 pair that are going to last you for longer, but the $50 one is all you can afford right now, but they're only going to last maybe a year or two. So every couple of years, you are now spending $50 on those shoes. So instead of just a one-time purchase, because you weren't in the place financially from the start to, to buy those shoes or whatever item it is, right? you have to now buy more of that item because you're wearing it and you're not, you know, and you're, but you're still making the same amount of money. So you're not in ever a place to make, to, to pay for those hundred pair dollar pair of shoes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and just to pivot back to um, something you had mentioned about the costuming in slacks before we get too deep into fast fashion and child labor, which oh, we I know. Yeah, we're getting easily there. will. We easily will. Um, <laughs> I noticed there was a lot of color blocking in this, and I was curious what you thought of that. I couldn't tell if it was just a stylistic choice or if there was something a little deeper there. I don't know, like, how – so I I think that the costume designer, um, Eric Poiré, um, he did an excellent job. And I, I, rem- I remember writing about color blocking because I did cover this on my blog last month when it came to Shudder. And it re- – it, it was very realistic in the sense of like it is what these stores do. Like it does look like mm-hmm. a Uniqlo or an H and M, where exactly. each section of the store is blocked off in those colors, and you have a certain amount of garments in those colors. And yeah, I don't know. I didn't see too much like symbolism. I'm curious what you grabbed from that. I just saw them as like a, a realistic representation of a, of a box store like that. I would agree. I, I feel like, I mean, stylistically, I liked the choice. Um, and it also made sense. Uh, if there's anything symbolic, I mean, the messaging of the film itself was already so strong. And I feel like what they did with the costume design was they wanted to carry those themes through. They wanted the costume design you know, yeah. this was a case where it was supporting the themes that were already so strong within the script, um, which was basically, you know, each section of the store was that, you know, has like its own color and everyone is sort of in their own color. Yeah. Um, and which sort of did remind me a little bit of kind of, uh, I don't know, just themes of having a very strict uniform. I don't know if the colors themselves had anything to do with um, symbolism, but I think that, you know, oftentimes in stores, you'll see them just in regular clothes or like dressed up nicely. But I kind of like that they chose to do the strong color themes because it's showcasing that these people are really submitting themselves to this job. And maybe, you know, you could even go as far to say that that wasn't even required of them that they chose to do that because their job is now their life. Yeah. Because there, there is such a cult like following around this corporation. Yeah. And there is a uniformality to it too. I think where you really see it is in the character Shruti played by, um, Sinar, uh, where she is the, the, the one disgruntled worker that is working in the store. Um, and her, outfit is so different from everybody else where exactly. you do have this color blocking and she's kind of like this p- punk grunge girl where she's got like the army green jacket mm-hmm. and the jeans and the beanie and everybody else just looks like another copy of the other person right? because they've bought into this idea of this store like you were saying exactly. and the idea of this job um, and that also reminded me of 
one of our characters, Lord, when he's trying to trade Libby on the floor, and he's like, oh, you need to be wearing CCC's clothing. And she's like, oh, I am. And he says to her, well, when did you buy it? And she was like, oh, last month. And he mm-hmm. turns around and goes, oh, well, that was four seasons ago. Like, that yeah. is – it's it's jarring, but it's so realistic to what these stores do is that mm-hmm. within a month, you've gone four fashion seasons. Right. Which That's I think- crazy. I'm pretty sure there is something like in a fast fashion cycle, like 52, 52 seasons. seasons a year, That's, which is you know, it's a season a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, how, of course, how are we going to keep up? You yeah. know? Yeah. Because in a slow fashion or a haute couture uh, fashion house, what people were doing up until, you know, like the 60s mm-hmm. um it was two seasons. It was a spring and a summer. And in the spring fashion show, you had all of your fall and winter looks for the coming year. And in a fall fashion show, you had all of your spring and summer looks for the following year. And they still do that. They, there's still fashion week. And there's a lot of Paris houses that still do that. And you can still find slow fashion and couture fashion. Mm-hmm. But it's um, not economically or cost effective for right. an average person. Who's right. getting paid, you know, the minimum wage in New York State is $15 an hour. I don't know how much it is out in Oregon, but. Yeah, it's about there. It's about, yeah. it's, I think it's maybe 14 Okay, yeah. That's still not a lot compared no. to the cost of living. Yeah, absolutely. So. And I think that is really the ultimate question of like, how can we make effective choices in the fashion industry? Because I think the thing is, as much as thrift stores and secondhand is becoming more popular I think that fast fashion is like the deceptive answer to like well maybe I don't want to go thrifting maybe I want to dress like all these you know ads and whatever I'm seeing or maybe maybe I just want a specific style of clothing that's new and fresh that isn't you know from a couple years ago or something and maybe they just don't want to go thrifting. Like, is thrifting the only answer? And how can we make slow fashion more accessible? Um, and I think the answer, again, is like not necessarily in the cycle of fashion. It's in um, it's in trying to figure out ways to make jobs themselves more sustainable and yeah. higher paying. It's, it's affecting change within the entire structure to basically abolish poverty itself and low income households so they can actually afford the things that they want to buy so then fast fashion there is no need because we aren't we aren't taught to invest in products or buy like this thing and then it'll last because then you'll be out of fashion within the year within the next couple months right. you know and like you had mentioned like this is only Trends have been ramping up since the 60s, um, and which is kind of when I would say like 60s, 70s is sort of when fast fashion became a mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, and it's really ramped up even more so since like the Great Recession in 2008. Like a lot of early 2010s fashion was based around fast fashion almost oh, entirely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've definitely participated in that in high school because when you're in high school, you don't have a lot of money. You're maybe getting an allowance, maybe have a job that's – but you go to school. So, like, you don't have time to have a full-time job. So, yeah, like, 
Forever 21 was an option. And all these places were options mm-hmm. because they were inexpensive clothing. It was in style with what teens were wearing. Yeah. I mean, I love Forever 21. <laughs> all right. So let's dive in to because we're kind of like teetering on this subject anyway. So I'm going to... um. I mean, we've we've been getting pretty passionate, but I just want to reiterate that we're not here to hit anybody over the head with any of this stuff. Um, I know this in my personal life that I can get quite scary when I get passionate about stuff, and I don't <laughs> want to scare anybody. But um, this these things are really important, and I I want we want you to recognize these things and maybe come away with this where you're looking at the world of how you're buying clothing and consuming clothing a little bit differently. Um, So I guess, firstly, we'll start with the idea of globalization. So globalization is the process by which businesses or other organizations develop international influence or start operating on an international scale. So where the problem of fast fashion comes in is these we as a, as the Western developed world, we wanted to help the other parts of the uh, of the world. So developing countries by giving them job opportunities and posting up these factories and um, what are now mostly called sweatshops in other countries to generate a, an economic system for them, create job markets, to create products. Um, the problem is, is that the companies on, and it's not just in America. I mean, these companies do this in England and Spain and in parts of Europe as well. It's just um, developed countries versus undeveloped countries um, where the profit margin starts to wiggle. So if a shirt is being made for $3 and you want to sell it for $1.50, or yes, if you yeah, if you want to sell it for a dollar fifty, um, you want your production cost to be that much cheaper. So these factories in these countries are competing to have the cheapest profit margin, so that they can produce the most of that product, and they could sell it for as cheaply as they could in whatever store this is. Um, but in doing that, you're cutting corners. You're cutting labor, you're adding more hours to intense labor, you're cutting labor um, rights, and these countries don't have unions, so you're exploiting the labor. Um, And people just stop caring about how the clothing is actually being made, and it's more about the money being generated and profited. And there are so many factory owners in place, specifically in India, because a lot of our clothing does come from India. Um, there's a huge factory and clothing market in Bangladesh in particular, and it creates all these jobs, which is good and we want to do that. But um, a lot of the factory owners are being really seedy about it, and they're not taking into consideration the welfare and the, the of their workers, and that's not okay. <laughs> Right. And what's also crazy is that, you know, with all these factories and with all this demand, the fashion industry is now like the second biggest polluter Mm -hmm. in the world and the second biggest consumer of water, mainly due to like textile dyeing and stuff. And so it's this constant, just constant pressing on not only consumers' wallets 
and the lack thereof of their workers, but also the whole world at large because the carbon footprint of the fashion industry is just massive. Oh, it's insane. And just like, like not even just like there's cotton and then there's, you know, poly cotton blends, which a lot of our clothing is made from. Well, polyester is essentially plastic. And not only is the plastic getting into the water, which is a whole nother lesson that I could do about how to do your laundry. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, we're washing our clothing way too much and that's why it does deplete as fast as it does. But um, it doesn't break down in landfills. So you have massive, massive piles of landfills on islands like Haiti where it's just textile waste and they're just sitting there and it's not doing anything because this stuff can't break down and it's polluting the earth and it's creating a lower quality of living for the people living in these places and near these things. And right. It's, God, it's insane. And so much of it, like we hear fast fashion and I think the word fast fashion is more prevalent now. So pe- more people are aware of it, but there's still so much that, I mean, now we're contending with greenwashing with all of this stuff, but there's still mm-hmm. so much that is unaware to the everyday consumer. Right. And I, I think that with the topic of fast fashion and these factories that are not paying their workers properly, which again is profitable for the Western world, which is horrible. um, The term child labor gets thrown around a lot, but not enough people are really having conversations about it, you know, because the more fast fashion continues to grow with consumer demands, it's basically impossible for children to not get stuck in this low paying industry and in this, this cyclical turnover Um, wages are already below living standard and children continue working for underpaying factories because they believe it's the only way to support themselves and their families. And, you know, the industry production costs are low and lower than ever because they have children working for them. And, you know, moreover, with the circular trap of fast fashion, um, it makes it extremely challenging for children to remove themselves from the industry almost ever um, and pretty much makes it impossible for them to pursue any other kind of employment or education that would help them get out of it because it's essentially a trap. And the International Labor Organization estimated a rise in child labor despite a suggested 30% decrease from 2000 to 2012 and the industry's high demands keep 11% of child laborers worldwide from pursuing schooling, which is terrible. And, you know, at what cost is it worth, you know, being consumed by this marketing that compels us to buy from fast fashion because also when it comes to the the argument that we talked about earlier with like oh well it's accessible oftentimes it's people that are in probably the upper 10 percent of the world purchasing from fast fashion retailers yeah and you also get influencers who are getting a bunch of stuff for free who are then portraying it to their audience to then buy and the people with the income want to buy it you know, like we talked about with throwaway culture, it's not necessarily, oh, it's accessible and I want to buy a cheaper version of an investment item. You know, it's I could buy 
I have enough money to buy a lot of this stuff. It's usually not, I have enough money to buy pants. You know, a lot of times low income families are shopping from thrift stores or are shopping, you know, to sourcing materials to make stuff themselves. Uh, And it's just, it's extremely, it's extremely toxic. And, you know, with the lack of, uh, with with not having enough access to the resources, the children that are then thrown into this industry that exploits them, if they don't have the resources, they're not going to be able to grow up and grow out of it. Yeah. And, you know, the Western world and their world are going to continue to exploit them because consumer demands are only going to get higher. Yeah, and I think the reason why a lot of this doesn't get talked about to the magnitude that it needs to be is because sewing, I mean, you and I do it, is inherently not that dangerous compared to other um, alternatives for for children and other people in developing countries where it's not coal mining, um, you're not fracking, you're not, right. you know, I mean, like, yeah, the industrial sewing machines can be pretty dangerous, but like, as a whole, these things aren't very dangerous. So I think people right. just kind of brush it off as, oh, well, they're sewing. How dangerous could it be? When in the right. reality, like, you know, back in, in 2013 in Dhaka, Bangladesh, a building collapsed, killing 11,000, no, um, 1,129 people. And that was Rana Plaza. And it was one of the biggest cases of neglect in these factories that we saw because the death toll was so high and it made international news everywhere and the workers had pointed out time and time again that there were cracks in the building that there were faults there was only one exit and the managers chose not to listen to their employees and then this happened and then it came out that this factory was serving how many fast fact fast fashion brands and stores that we were consuming here in the the U.S. and in Europe. And, you know, that reminds me of like something that a lot of people um, have heard about is like the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire. Mm -hmm. You know, in in 1911, fire caused deaths of, you know, upwards of like 140 plus garment workers, um, most of which were women and girls, um, most of which were Italian and Jewish, uh, and many, many people died. And what I think people, you know, to, to grasp what's really truly happening in these factories across the world is that Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire gets talked about relatively frequently um, as this, you know, like horrible, horrible, you know, deadly industrial disaster, which it was um, and super deadly in the U.S. history. But that was happening at a time when fast fashion didn't exist yet. And, right. you know, with the rise of fast fashion, there are many, many triangle shirtwaist factory adjacent situations and, and tragedies happening across the world that, of course, aren't getting media coverage, you know. Right. It's, it's, and they're happening more frequently. They're happening way more frequently because of the demand of fast fashion. So yeah. a tragedy like this could happen here. Um, and, you know, of course, perhaps the – sure, maybe it wasn't as developed at the time. But in places outside of the U.S. where there is extremely unsafe 
working conditions and the demands even higher, you know, stuff like this is happening constantly. And, you know, we feel like, I think a lot of people feel kind of like, oh, or they, they feel maybe a little removed from, yeah. from it. It's, and it's not, it's not affecting them. How can they help? But they're placing orders of like 40 plus items on Forever 21 just because they have the finances to do so. And it's not necessarily their fault that they've been given that option. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens when you are, you know, inherently in this consumerism society of and not that consumerism and capitalism isn't 100 percent evil it is you know it is the enable it, it enables people to make their own way in the world and we don't have a class system like a lot of these countries where we can better ourselves through our education through the jobs that we create for ourselves and we are able to kind of get, get ourselves a better lot in life so that our children are and our grandchildren could have a much easier time in the world and that's fair when it where it gets evil is when it starts manipulating the the consumer when it starts blindly telling the consumer that this is what you need and what you should want because if you don't how are you going to keep up with x y and z down the block that's when it starts getting evil and we start to see this shift right after world war ii when you had all these gis coming home suburbs started to being developed and all of a sudden, not only was it a push for women to get back out of the workforce and back into the home, but it was a push to people had this money now because we weren't Europe. We weren't rebuilding our cities. That Our cities weren't affected by World War II. So we had all of this disposable income from the war, which, you know, unfortunately, wars generate money in countries. So we had this new um, need for washing machines and microwaves and appliances. And that's when you saw the silhouette in fashion change from some simplistic ideas of skirts and blouses to yards and yards of tool. I mean, think of the dresses in the 50s that were just like explosions of (laughs) tool and just massive. Yeah. And, and, you know, and while the stuff was still being made here in the 60s, it started to shift. I mean, it went from 95% of our clothing made in this country to now 95% of our clothing bought in this country is made elsewhere. Only 3% mm-hmm. is made in this country now. Mm-hmm. So, and, and where it's a catch-22, where it's, you know, what I was saying before with globalization, you want to create a job market in other countries because I think it's a responsibility for richer countries to work with developing countries to create jobs, to create education, to create opportunities. Um, but then, yeah, not exploit them. <laughs> don't don't be right. shitty about it. Like, yeah, it's, it's our job to uphold those standards. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, like you had mentioned, the U.S. specifically has always been a country of excess when it comes to, I mean, God, everything, but, <laughs> oh God, yeah. you know, especially when it comes to fashion and, you know, even in like the 60s and 70s when, you know, younger younger generations begin to value, you know, more trend-centric, uh, cost-effective clothing, it was still, you know, excessive. And I think at the time... 
it was sort of a younger generation's response to the excess they were seeing. Because, I mean, prior to that, fashion was very much a luxury and for the elite. And for many, it still is. But specifically at the time, it was kind of like trends were more so trying to showcase power and wealth. And it was very over the top and glamorous and full of tool and, you know, the old Hollywood glamour that you you kind of see. I mean, that's what people wanted to dress like. And teens were kind of revolutionizing in the 60s specifically. And they didn't want to succumb to that. And even if maybe a lot of the fashions of their time as well were still over the top and dramatic, um, they, I don't think, I don't think teens at the time meant to invent fast fashion right? because I think that they were actually trying to just be like, this is way too rigid, way too much, way too much excess. Um, And then it, you know, of course, not their fault. Yeah. Landed us in, you know, this world of fast fashion. But I think what has remained consistent um, is that the U.S. has always been a place of excess. You know, I mean, that's why there's the whole phenomenon about um, and history behind uh, a lot of women in the U.S. being marketed this idea of like Parisian women and like the simplicity of that lifestyle. It's kind of I don't know. Sometimes I see parallels uh, between, you know, this this idea of excess and what other countries are doing with a lot of like people in the U.S. are kind of daydreaming about other countries and romanticize um, what they believe are the styles of and lives of other countries uh, because there is so much excess here that I think is a major turnoff for people. But we don't think about how even if our personal like, you know, surface level styles don't reflect uh, the excess that is ingrained in our country, um, the mentalities and the, you know, the way things are structured are objectively in excess and um, are self-serving. And even if we're like, oh, well, I don't wear, you know, huge, massive ball gowns every day. And, you know, on a surface level, I'm not, I'm not supporting that kind of excessive, luxurious fashion. Um, We're still fundamentally supporting it, maybe not as consumers, but like just at large. Right. Um, the U.S. is consistently supporting excessive self-serving uh, structures. Yeah. And, and I think a lot about, to the mall boom that happened in the 80s. Yeah. Because, um, like, as you were saying, these kids of the 60s were looking at their parents and saying, well, I don't want to be like that with the tool, so I'm going to kind of flip it. But then the kids of the 60s parents – Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing, well, I don't want to be like my parents that were hippies that didn't do this stuff. And now I have accessibility to malls. And what do teens do? They go to malls. They hang out. They they have disposable income. So it's marketed towards them because they have nothing to gain or lose because they're still young enough that, you know, their dollars are just going to be spent frivolously in this landscape of of what is the American mall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you've seen like, you know, throughout history, there's been these like little booms, you know, with like the 60s kind of kicking it off. And then the 80s, we have this mall boom and then malls seem to be dying out. But then we have, you know, 
the Great Recession in 2008 and then early 2010s, tons and tons of people are having this resurgence of like H&M, Forever 21. Yeah. Um, which also kind of, you know, to speak just to trends of the early 2010s, <laughs> I don't know if this was intentional, but um, the pair of jeans, the pair of killer jeans and slacks are these um, really tiny little skinny jeans, which were absolutely massive in the early 2010s. Um, when we were having this kind of kickoff of fast fashion, as well as when we were having this mall boom in the 80s. And so I'm just curious if that was intentional or if it was like, oh, we just need super tight pants. But anyways. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think so. Because, I mean, the trends for for these things kind of come and go in cycles and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I I remember hanging out at malls and when I was in high school and... You know, we would with our skinny jeans. I still, I still wear skinny jeans. Hey, <laughs> I, also, I have my flares too, but <laughs> they can work. I mean, it's called versatility. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm so curious too about like if malls have been dying, and I mean, well, yes, malls are dying, but have has social media affected the reason malls are dying at all? I'm curious if there's a connection hmm. between the two because it seems as though or or if, you know, the marketing we get in social media has simply replaced the marketing that we got subconsciously at the mall all around yeah. us. And now it's just all around us on our phones. Right. I'm sure it's a bit of both. I mean, I uh, – when was it? Like last fall, I went to a mall for the first time in, gosh, forever. And – um forgetting that, you know, it was COVID times and that I would have to wait on a line outside the store. I quickly turned around and left the mall. But I, I noticed that, which made me really thankful for not like, yes, I had a phone in high school, but it didn't like do what it does today. Right. And, <laughs> like they, it was just a bunch of kids just standing online waiting to get in a store on their phones. Like none of them were talking to each other. So yeah. I don't think, I don't think kids are hanging out in malls the same way that like kids in high school, when I was in high school. A place to go hang out. Yeah, yeah, a place to go hang out. Like, I'm I'm not super old. Like, I was in high school from, like, 2007 to 2011. But, um, I mean, we were, like, yeah, we were going and we were hanging out. And we were watching all the scene kids hanging out around outside Hot Topic when Hot Topic used to be scary. <laughs> and, <Ooh. laughs> yeah, when we used to have the spider webs and stuff. But, um, yeah, and, and there were just so many more kids but i think yeah you're right that they're they're getting more marketing from their phones so what is the point of standing in a mall other than getting right. out of the house for an afternoon and going shopping face to face i mean i do most of my shopping online because yeah. I, and i mean for somebody i like i know how to take my own measurements so i just find it easier i also don't 100% always like trying on clothes in stores i just think it's a pain in the ass like once i'm dressed i don't really want to get <laughs> right. dressed Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it is. There's a convenience to shopping online. Yeah. there. I mean, there is a convenience to shopping online. And also, I mean, I almost wish that like because taking your own measurements is genuinely not difficult, but no one really thinks to do it. No. Um, I am seeing, although with the rise of things like, you know, Etsy and Depop and online thrifting, I think that yes. there is definitely more interest in online shopping in general um, and online thrift shopping, too, which is crazy um but you know especially when it comes to online shopping i feel like that is something that 
ends up on many occasions being important to our jobs as costume designers. Yeah. And something that I have been in situations where I've found myself having to online shop in cases where I didn't want to due to time constraints. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm curious what your experience as a costume designer um, is right now because, you know, the film industry is objectively not super sustainable. There's many initiatives and it's been, you know, on the minds of many um, when it comes to how we can make the film industry more sustainable. But, um, you know, as costume designers, we have a very specific role um, in that process. And I'm curious what your experience has been and what what things you've run into that have been difficult, maybe like personally, ethically, and also, you know, things that you've done or you've seen other people do on sets to make the process more sustainable or what you maybe would even like to change. Yeah. So um, I know that I've had to, I, I'm not a huge fan of purchasing from Amazon um, and I'm okay with being vocal about this because they're a huge company and I don't think they treat their workers well, but there is this accessibility like we were just talking about with um, tight turnarounds and when you're working and you need something or if, if a director changes something between days of shooting or, you know, dress rehearsals in the theater and I know that I can get this item in one to two days, sometimes I do have to kind of like bite my lip and and purchase some things from Amazon because I know that the item will get there quickly. I know that I can return it fast if I need to return right. it because there's those drop-off points at UPS stores. Um, so that's been hard. I've also tried to not, so I'm a vegan who will not buy obviously any animal product, but if it is vintage fur or leather for the sake of a show or a movie, um, I will buy that for my actor because, um, it doesn't put the demand back in the market and you're keeping it out of the landfill. And I know that that's right. an interesting uh, hot button topic for some vegans where, you know, leather is leather, so I'm not going to buy it or wear it at all. But then there are some that are like, well, if it's already made and it's vintage, you know, so there's that, that whole ethical debate. Um, Right. Yeah. But it's just, it is a lot of the, it's the biggest one for me is the Amazon thing. Um, Mm -hmm. There are a lot of costume shops on Broadway that um, there's an alliance called the Broadway Green Alliance that you can be involved in. And there's no formal training, but it's basically a packet that you get from the different presidents of the different chapters of like, because laundry chemicals are a big one. And um, it's really hard. Like, so I worked for Disney for a while and they have one standard chemical and that's it. And I totally understand why they have this standard chemical, because when you're dealing with that amount of people every day and you have snotty kids and germy kids coming up and hugging these characters and then you're throwing the laundry in the wash. Like you want to make sure that that garment is clean right. and there are no germs on it. Um, but some of these chemicals are super harmful. So um, I guess doing the research and like seeing for yourself, if you have more control over your shop than buying the laundry chemicals that are more appropriate. And I always talk to my actors too. I'm always like, hey, 
these are the the products that I like to use. Does anybody have sensitive skin? Because allergies are a big thing that nobody really thinks about either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always like, hey, I'm going to use these products. Do you want something stronger or are you okay with me using this product? Because mm-hmm. I feel better about it because this is my shop. And, and usually actors are pretty great about being like, yeah, because most of the time actors very conscious about um, things that they're putting on their body and in their body. So they're right. they're very gung-ho about, yeah. Like, let's do these, you know, I love seventh generation. I'm not sponsored by them, but if you want to sponsor us, um, but I love their, <laughs> I love their laundry detergent. Um, I think it's really great. It doesn't have a, a very potent odor. I yeah. think it cleans clothing really well. Apple cider vinegar and baking soda are really good go-to for myself. Um, yeah. I mean, it's hard. It really is hard when you're not a hundred percent in control, like you would be in your own home and you're just buying for yourself or buying for your family. Right. Yeah, exactly. What about you, Emma? Do you, do you face challenges on set or like what are your experiences been? Yeah, I, I would also say that I've had some situations where um, I've had to use Amazon and oftentimes it's even expected that you do um, because everyone is aware that that's the fastest way to get something and film being such a fast paced industry Um you are often on a pretty tight schedule and especially with when it comes to costumes, um, oftentimes you'll have to make last minute switches um, or even maybe you need like an extra duplicate that you didn't need before. And, you know, or even like on commercials, they'll require you to get a million options and they'll require like last minute switches, like, like even more than, you know, episodic or like a film, like, they will require you to change it like day of. You're like, how else am I going to do that um, (laughs) if it's not accessible in the store? Um, And so I've, you know, and so personally I have used Amazon before to um, aid in costume design, um, even on occasions where it's not asked of me because I have my own personal concerns about timing. And, you know, I try really hard in my personal life to, not buy from Amazon and to buy, you know, directly from small businesses. Or like if I find something on Amazon, I'll try and go directly to the person selling it and not through Amazon. But, you know, sometimes it is difficult when it comes to filmmaking. I mean, even with like props outside of costume, it's lots of different things that make online shopping, particularly through services like that, um, the easiest and the most effective um, when it comes to timing, but also when it comes to price. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, oftentimes I've been in situations where um I wasn't doing like a period piece. I couldn't find things in thrift stores that I needed that were modern enough and I needed to go buy something from a fast fashion retailer because the project and myself could not afford to go to an actual fashion house where they do do slow fashion. Um, and, you know, like we've talked about, uh, in previous episodes, we've mentioned how costume designers and wardrobe departments in general are only very recently getting their due and very recently getting the recognition, um, that they, you know, rightfully deserve. Um, but that also means that the ethics of it and the sustainability of it have, are, are, are just now starting to catch up. I mean, those conversations, um, aren't really ones that they've had, um, them being all of us. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and you know, something that I've 
been able to do on like smaller independent projects is do as much thrifting um, as I possibly can. Um, I have had success doing it when it's not a period piece, but obviously that's the easiest thing to do if it is a period piece. Um, I also like to make as much as I can on my own, uh, but also not every costume designer knows how to sew. and Or I'm maybe on a project where it's either just me or I don't have a massive team to make enough of, you know, maybe make enough duplicates or make enough of this, that, and the other to meet the time and money demands. And that's where, you know, you end up buying from non-ethical, non-sustainable sources. Um, but I've also, you know, I, I've had that privilege on the independent projects being able to shop vintage. Also on smaller projects, I've been able to have the agency to use stuff from my own costume stock. And so um, because I freelance, I do have my own costume stock, which I can use on various projects. But, you know, on larger scale projects, um, on, you know, big budget films, or when it comes to commercials, you usually don't get to use your own stuff. It's it's not as personal. Um, even if you do all the things required to wash them properly, generally, you're not in that position of control. Um, but the, the good thing that I have, I've had a good experience on a couple of big budget films in town. Um, where basically every single project, um, if it's not returned directly to the store, um, we're able to donate a lot of the stuff that we buy, um, and we'll, you know, give it to, uh, Goodwill or, or give it to another, you know, we have like local secondhand chains that will be able to donate, um, the stock to instead of just hoarding it or instead of, you know, just like, like, what are we going to do with it? Um, and so I've had a good experience with that. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing is, you know, especially when you're in the pre-production process, especially on a larger project, you have to buy so many options. <laughs> um, yeah. And it can get, you know, I mean, one, it's a lot to manage, but any, you know, like even like wardrobe assistant, which is um, something I often do on like bigger scale projects. Most of that job is doing returns. You know, most of that job yes. <laughs> is you're going to be um, going to Nike and Forever 21 and, you know, all these places. Um, but yeah, so those are kind of the the pros and cons I've run into. Um, and it can be difficult on a bigger budget, I think, because you have less control over how sustainable you make your own department. Yeah, I think also I think you do and you don't too cuz sometimes um like with bigger projects if you are entrusted to run your own shop or to run your right. own department in that way, you might have some more freedoms. It really just depends on her who exactly. you're working with. And then I always think of um when unions get involved too, when a lot of actors unions get involved, there are certain stipulations that like actors equity and SAG actors SAG the Screen Actors Guild um have uh certain specifications for how you can costume actors and when it comes to a budget you know that you're getting from your producers and your director that you have for your costume budget i always encourage the actor because in theater i know that i can never reuse shoes and those are the things that like usually um well they contribute to a lot of 
in the environmental issues as far as like pollution and stuff, but they don't get worn very often. It's not like a regular pair of shoes that you're going to wear around town. So I always encourage my actors to buy back the shoes from me. And then I just add that money to my budget or I just write it off as my budget that like, yeah, this is what I bought. And instead of giving, because actors do like to take pieces sometimes and they get attached right. to pieces. So I like to give them the option to like, hey, you could buy this from us and then you can have these shoes forever and ever <laughs> until you're done. Right. And another thing that um, I recently found this resource, um, which is an amazing resource for costume designers who are running their own department, um, costume designer and author of the costume directory, Sunid Kadeo, created um, this PDF um, basically as an open resource which connects costume designers and buyers with suppliers and brands who prioritize sustainability, environmental responsibility, and fair trade. And the costume directory basically explains um, the things to consider when choosing a supplier, a brand, and factory, and also provides links to those like co-ops and individual artisans and weavers across the world who are sustaining traditional crafts in local environments, which I thought was an amazing thing um, that she's doing. She recently, um, Sunid worked on, uh, she was an assistant costume designer on Wonder Woman 1984 and Little Women um, and implemented these practices into both of those departments as much as possible. And so that's an amazing resource if you're a costume designer or even if you're just working on a production and you want to give your costume department um, some more options and resources on making their department more sustainable because um, it is it is tricky. Um, our department is a bit of a tricky one. And like we said, it's, it's one that, you know, we're just now beginning to have conversations about even just how our departments function, you know, in this process, you know, because back in the day, it was generally overlooked or oftentimes not even hired officially. Um, yeah. Or um, people were just going straight to couture right, houses right. And, and buying these brands. And that's what the actors right. were wearing. And that was it. And you were good. I mean, that's like um, yeah. The Hunger uh, with Catherine Deneuve, which I believe is 1981. I don't know. One of my favorite vampire movies. Very stylish. Mm -hmm. uh, her costume designer was just Yves Saint Laurent. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like she was good. Um, yeah. And that's not always accessible for people nowadays. Um, no. Because the demands of film are also also going up. Um, but, you know, something that I do love to see is that the film industry at large um, across the world is genuinely having conversations about sustainability. And I think that document that she made is so important because – it, it is kind of like a barren wasteland where you as the designer don't really know where right. to look. So if you have these resources where you can say, okay, I can bring the sustainability into my shop. These are some things I can implement. These are brands I can look to. It really does help when you have so many other things to think about. That's one less thing that you have to think right. about. Because like, here is my list of things that I could go off Right. Of and something else that I was also reading about, because I was kind of just reading about general, you know, like what are people looking for when making a film to make their project more sustainable? Um, because, you know, when it comes to the data around that, there is basically a massive carbon footprint with the film industry, just as there is with fast fashion. So that's a fun, you know, 
wombo combo. Um, <laughs> but um, the BFI and BAFTA led initiative, a screen new deal, which is like an adorable name. Um, <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> it shows that one average tentpole film production, um, which is like a film with a budget of over 70 million, generates 2,840 metric tons of carbon dioxide, which is just wow. absurd. And, you know, transportation costs are usually massive on these on these, you know, larger scale productions. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much involved. It's not just transportation. It's also like how much electricity yeah. is used. And yeah, I also think of craft services because they always give you your food in those little kits. And I'm like, I don't need all this I know, plastic. It's, <laughs> just exactly. Plastic. Oh my God. I mean, think of how many water bottles just from craft services are yeah. just discarded. And I understand that like now during COVID, like these things are harder and it right. really pains me because you want, you can't just have the food anymore laying out on these tables and you do have to give out water bottles. I always bring my own water bottle to set and I bring my like big like 64 ounce camping mm-hmm. water bottle. <laughs> That's like this big jug that I take with me. But yeah, it's it's not it's not just cost me. It is everybody. It's everything. But it's it's great that we're having these conversations now on how to make sets more sustainable. I know that I've heard it, you know, in different interviews and talks with different people. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that reminds me of um, one of the films I worked on right before um, right before COVID hit, which was depressing, but this, at least, this film was at least a good memory. Um, <laughs> it was uh, it was a pretty it was like a larger scale production, but still like small budget. It was like a one million, which is, you know, small, but, you know, for an independent filmmaker like myself, that's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but they actually, the crew gift was that they gave everyone reusable water bottles and they gave it to us when production started so we could actually use them. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, conversations around sustainability, especially with like crafty and COVID safety. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of like, okay we can submit to using things like re- or, or disposable water bottles and that kind of stuff for safety around the pandemic. But it's something that it's like, okay, what one can, what can we begin to implement sustainably now while we're still in the middle of it? But two, when COVID is under control um, and we are back on set and we're in a situation where we can use our own water bottles, you know, if that's like the barometer, it, what are we going to be doing? We can't continue yeah. to just be using plastic utensils constantly, you know? I, I mean, yeah. it's it's definitely complicated. Um, something I was reading about is that a lot of these initiatives are kind of uh, trying to consult with either, like, onset or offset and, like, pre-production, like, agencies that are specifically to assist crews in making sustainable film. Um, which I That's think is great. amazing and you know they'll yeah. they meet with production teams before filming begins and they can advise them on building sustainability just into like the bottom line of making the film um, because I think that's where it is you have to have it in the roots and not just be like oh hey guys use a little of, use less water bottles right. you know fill up your own you know yeah. it, it, there's it has to be ingrained in the process before you go into production. Um, And so – And if it's not coming from the top down too, like if you're not seeing the people at the top do it, you're less likely to follow suit as well. So it needs to be 
every department doing it so that everybody is held accountable and you're holding each other Right. Just like the workflow. It needs to be built into that pre-existing workflow between the departments. Um, And, you know, things like using LED lights, electric powered, gas-free generators, streamlining the, you know, transportation logistics. Um, And also, you know, like, in, in larger scale productions where maybe international travel is necessary, doing as much virtual meeting as possible or making trips as short as possible um, or as or maybe not not making them short as possible, but making them as long as possible. So you don't have to travel as much back and forth because that is right. what um, people will do. They'll go back and forth a ton of times and, you know, utilize plane travel just as if it's their car on the way to work. And, you know, I, that can be absolutely massive when it comes to the conversation around the film industry at large and, you know, making it more sustainable. Um, and, you know, if you can't maybe find one of these agencies, because there's not a lot of them, there's not a lot of sustainable film consulting agencies um, right. Something that can be built into the process is like an eco production assistant, having an eco PA on yeah. set, just like we have um, during COVID film productions have COVID PAs. We have people on yeah. COVID safety teams. There can be people on um, a sustainability team that are focused on making sure that um, workflow of having the sustainability built into the roots of the production, um, that's their only job is to make sure that that is there for everyone and as accessible for everyone. Because I think in the fast-paced world of filmmaking and costume designing, oftentimes it's about timing. And if it's not super accessible, unfortunately, a lot of productions are going to sideline the sustainability because it's just about getting it done, which is really brutal, but it is. And um, especially the larger and larger a production gets and the more people are involved, the shorter on time you're going to be, you know, you're going to need it done yesterday almost always. And so you need to have these practices already in place um, for it to be effective in the production process. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes to same with fast fashion. And and it's not just these big box stores that are with these 52 seasons that are contributing to a lot of this stuff. You also have to do the research with these bigger houses because there are houses. And when I say houses, I mean like the, you know, like the house of Marc Jacobs, the house of Chanel. Um, these bigger brands will also trying to to squeeze that profit margin out and you know get their clothing made cheaper even though they're still selling it for that that large profit part point here they still want to get it made cheaper cheaper and quicker because it's more cost effective for them so just you know we're not telling all you all of this to you to to scare you guys <laughs> yeah excuse me but, um i mean there are scary topics and it's daunting and it's the horrors of real yeah. life um but just, you know, kind of, you know, when you go to buy something next time, ask yourself, like, where where did this come from? Do you think you're being greenwashed? And if you have the means to do the research and to look in further to to the clothing that you're buying, and if you have the accessibility, because that's it's all it comes down to is, is accessibility. And if you make the cheaper stuff more accessible for everybody, that's what everybody's going to yeah. buy. So holding these brands accountable holding 
companies accountable and and making sure they're not greenwashing you, making sure that they're doing what they say that they should be doing. Um, yeah, and just doing doing the research, doing the work, mm-hmm. I think is what it really comes down to. And I know that a lot of people in the Western world, <laughs> we don't like to do the work because it's easier because we've just been kind of given stuff. It's a very ready-to-wear, ready-to-eat market, mm-hmm. but um, it's not sustainable and it's hurting a lot of people and it's hurting a lot of uh, primarily women and children in developing countries from from health opportunities from education opportunities um yeah and that's that's not okay and it's our job as these bigger countries to to kind of take a step back and say wait this isn't working anymore so how do we we fix this exactly and you know as individuals in the western world you know it's it's not necessarily up to us to single-handedly fix all of this you know we are right just as manipulated by these companies as well but um you know we have the privilege of having access to resources to hold these corporations and these companies accountable and that is where it becomes our responsibility you know we can't as you know one person in this structured be able to um, end child labor. But what we can do is advocate for these companies to do it. And and we can, you know, vote with our wallet. That kind of mentality, yes. especially when it comes to fast fashion, I think is really important um, because it really is about what you're putting your money into. And when it comes to like individual responsibility, I think that that you know, at least in my opinion, is one of the best ways to make effective change. Because unfortunately, a lot of companies, most companies, all companies only care about what's in your wallet. (laughs) Um, And we, you know, within our means, of course, um, can rethink how we're spending our money and um, rethink how much we're buying and shift our our mindsets a little bit around you know maybe i don't need to buy 40 items from H&M but i could buy two items that are going to last three times as long you know for half the price um yeah. and so that's at least how i look at it and i absolutely appreciate slacks for not only being a super fun horror comedy with b-movie gore and absolute chaos (laughs) but for its ability to shed a light on these issues and to spark us having this conversation and to you know shed a light on these real life horrors and you know for that i think it's an awesome movie um yeah but before we go jolene i have to know what did you make of the ending of this delicious movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we have this ending where we think Libby is going to be our final girl. And she gets run over by a mob. <laughs> people. Of, of, of people, yeah, at this like Madness Monday sale, which is in itself is super scary because people – really do die like that on Black Friday. I don't support Black Friday shopping at all. But I think by killing her, I think it's just kind of saying that like 
unless we really stand up and, and try to make a change in the ways that you and I were just talking about, we are going to succumb to these companies. We are at the mercy of these, of, of the, of our yep. dollar. And it takes us as individuals to really change. And I think Libby wasn't, um, she wasn't the most perfect character because at the beginning she did kind of idolize this company through no fault of her own, but because that's what she was being sold. She's what, like 16, yeah. 17 years old. So she doesn't know any better, but, um, yeah, I think she really represents the Western world. Yeah. She's who yeah. we don't want to become because we are her and yeah. it's, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, we we don't know all the ways that we're buying into these things. And it's, especially with social media, hard to remove ourselves from the marketing that's constantly around us. But, you know, shout out to Slacks for sparking us, you know, to have discussions like this that are important and remind us to, you know, separate ourselves from what we're being told we need to buy and who we need to buy it from. And, you know... Yeah. I also want a short, um, if anybody is listening who worked on the film, I would like a short sequel. I want to know what happens to those five <laughs> pairs of jeans. Do they eat the entire crowd of people? I need to know. Um, do they inherit the earth? Because, okay, so I had this professor in grad school and she really pissed me off when she told me, don't ever put a pair of jeans on the stage because nobody will look at your character seriously. They tell you nothing of a character. And I want to say bullcrap on that (laughs) because we had just spent an hour and a half talking about an entire movie about a pair of denim jeans so yeah up yours because the character doesn't even need anything else except the jeans it's literally just the jeans there is no character i also want to give a shout out to the practical effects oh my gosh so fun puppeteered pants are the way of the future and should forever be in every musical. I think that's so cool that they were puppeteered. I mean, that's just so fun. And, you know, Jolene had mentioned before we started recording that this has such a charming B-movie mentality to it. And it's kind of because it still has, it's not like, it's sure it's trying to homage B-movies with kind of like the fun gore and the structure and the, you know, survive the night thing. But I think it has a lot of heart that we, you know, love a lot of these B-movies for. Like, they just wanted to have a good time making this film. And I feel like that comes through in Slacks. And you can tell that this came from a really passionate team, a really passionate writer-director. And, yeah, I think it's a killer film. And (laughs) I'm glad that it's reminded me to really think about how to sustainably purchase clothing and also how to, you know, what conversations I need to be having on productions when it comes to my costume department or when it comes to like producing or directing, like this is stuff that's really important. It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget in the Western world. And we just want to, you know, gently remind you all through the lens of this ridiculous fun killer pants slasher to, (laughs) you know, just Think about it from time to time. And hey, maybe yeah. revisit Slacks or revisit this episode if you ever forget what's going on in the rest of the world. Because we all do at some points. It is super easy to get caught up in our own worlds. And it's not our fault, but we still have the power to consider other people's lives outside of our own. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much again for joining us this week. Um, Emma and I 
had a blast talking about this with you. We hope that you enjoyed listening to us. Um, we know that it was just, you know, the one film that we were speaking about and that most of the issues were real issues, but they're real important issues. And I think, especially for Earth Day, but every day is Earth Day um, <laughs> when we're thinking about how we're buying clothing and how we're we're purchasing things. I think these are important things that we do need to talk about because they're real horrors that happen yeah. in the world. And it's yeah. really important, which I also didn't realize we were actually recording this on Earth Day, which we were already doing in yes. honor of Earth Day. So the stars are aligned. <laughs> yes. um, but yes. thank you guys so much for tuning in. We had a blast talking about this and we really appreciate all of your support. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at to die for podcast. And that's D Y E and on Twitter at die podcast. If you're interested in any further resources on supporting sustainability in the fashion industry, check out our show notes for further information. And next time that you go into your closet, remember that your pieces could also be to die for. <laughs>